This week on Writers Inc. Right. Yeah. It's not, and like it's not incidental, but I really am more interested in how people react to strange situations than I am in, say, how time travel works. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. JD, how is uh, Thriller Fest planning coming along? It's it's coming along. I'm I'm teaching a master class, so I've got all these these stories that I have to read right now for the the people that are going to be in the class, and that's always fun because I've got to eat up about eight hours worth of, of teaching time and you know working with with writers. But this is going to be the first time in front of a, a group, you know, like physically in front doing this for a while. I, I, the last two that I've I've done for ITW have been over Zoom, um, and I've done a couple other ones over Zoom. So it, it's going to be nice to be in a classroom because you just you lose something over Zoom. You know, like if you're up there, you know, talking, doing your your thing, like you, you know it you need to be able to look out over those faces and kind of figure out, you know, like who to call on next and who's resonating with some particular thing. And you, you just can't do that if they're, you know, they're on a zoom camera or they're, you know, a lot of people just turn their camera off too. So like it's, yeah. So I'm looking forward to, to doing, doing the live thing again. Um, I just, I don't know if you guys use the KDP dashboard, but when I logged in this morning, I had a brand new one. Have you guys gotten that? Yeah. Yet? They're slowly rolling that out permanently. I think that uh, the reports one that was been in beta. Yeah. Yeah, like I'm, I'm on the fence about it. I think it's a lot cleaner. It seems to communicate a lot more information than what the old one did. Um, the one thing I don't like about it, though, is like I can't see what happened yesterday. Like I, I tend to look at it like in the morning or you know right after I get my words done. I just want to see you know what my KDP reads were, how many books I sold yesterday, like all in one shot. Um, and there may be a report in there that that has all that, but I, I haven't found it yet. I found like two or three different ones, you know, and I kind of scroll through and get the same info. Um, but like the rest of the stuff, the way they're communicating, and I think is is all good. So. I'm glad they're they're trying something different. Yeah, so, I mean, it's only been ten years, so yeah, you know. <laughs> must be, they're finally must be using doing the same something. developers as same developers they've got over at Goodreads. <laughs> there goes our Amazon sponsorship. I was gonna say this episode is sponsored by Jeff Bezos dialing in. Uh, how? Uh, what about like the uh, the event in general? How how plugged into the, the the planning are you on just sort of the overall event? You know, honestly, I haven't touched base with anybody since the, all the recent travel. Um, I know the numbers were, were on track, so it sounds like that you know it's going to be full. The attendance is, is where they're they're expecting it to be, which is all good because you know six months ago everybody was worried that you know only me and Kim would be the, the, you know the, the only two people that showed up. I would have gone too. Um, all right, so you know, like the three of us. Um, but yeah, it looks it looks like for the most part every, everybody's coming out, and I'm honestly not sure what the rules are in, in New York City right now. I don't know if they're still requiring masks in indoor. Um, I don't think they are, but you know I, I could be wrong about that. Uh, but we'll see. But it sounds like everybody's just anxious to get out of their house and finally get back to, to some some fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I thought it was two years since we were last there. It's been three, right? It was 2019. Uh, what year is it I now? Think was the last one? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's been been a while yeah. and now we've got monkeypox coming along so. yeah and it's in new york so it's perfect <laughs> yeah yeah get ready for that i can't concentrate anyways because all i see is zach's perfectly rounded head 
I don't I don't know if he sanded it or what, but it dude, it's perfectly rounded. I think it has something to do with these walls. The color on these walls or something kind of blends into me a little bit. I look pretty orange. I don't know what's going on. I don't know, man, but it's it's a beautiful curvature you got there. All I know is that I'm happy to be at an actual desk and not the setup I had last week. I don't know if I, I don't think I actually sent you guys a picture of what my setup was last week, but it was horrible. So yeah, you wanted, it was like a TV tray setup, wasn't it? It was like a TV tray at the edge of my couch, and I was all like, "Yeah, it was." So I'm glad to actually have built a desk, and actually have a desk now here in my my new bedroom. So I'm pretty. Uh, it's it's much better. So you guys are giving me so much FOMO though, since I'm not going to Thriller Fest. I'm a little, uh, you know, I was I was on the fence, but with this move and everything, it was kind of going to be really difficult for me to make it. So. Um, I'll just have to get even more FOMO when I ask you guys about it next week on the podcast. So, sorry, man. Didn't mean to. Didn't mean to leave you out. <laughs> no, it's a, I'm just messing. I don't, it's all. It's not your fault. So at least I won't get monkeypox. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting flashbacks from when we talked about the serial killers that I interviewed in prison like <laughs> last week. Like he shoot his, We need to get a screenshot up there somewhere because Zach's camera is like at an angle and like it's, it looks like it's one of those documentaries where they sit down and talk to somebody just because it's not shooting them straight on. <laughs> <laughs> with it really black, does look like that. Yeah, black black T-shirt and the plain you know beige walls and stuff. You got a, a serious prison vibe going on right there. <laughs> I'm debating whether I'm going to put anything up on the walls just because they're like I'm in I'm in a, I'm in a townhome I'm renting and you know if you put any holes in the wall you got to fix them later and I'm like I don't care that much about looking at stuff on the walls so <laughs> I may just keep them blank I don't know. Are, are you okay keeping your Backstreet Boys posters and stuff all rolled up? <laughs> yeah, you know, that was a really tough decision. and uh, But I, maybe I'll tape them or something. I don't know. So we'll see. I was always more of a 98 Degrees guy. But, um, yeah. you know. They, they were the better one. It, it's never the first one that comes out. It's always the second or third band that, that actually knows what they're doing. But they don't get the credit they deserve. Yeah, 98 I Degrees totally for agree. sure. Yeah, they're super underrated. So what are we what are we doing today, guys? <laughs> no idea. Did we start recording? Yet? Yeah, I think, I think we've been recording. I, I, do, this, I do have a little thing uh, on a little of business to announce. Uh, we got word from Penguin Random House that uh, due to supply chain issues, they have to push back the release of the Carbon Almanac from June twenty first to July twelfth. So not a big deal. It's only a few weeks, and uh, we're, we're pretty lucky because there are global supply chain issues, especially with paper. So. Uh, yeah. Fingers crossed. If you're waiting for the Carbon Almanac, um, it'll be a few weeks later, but it is uh, still scheduled. And Seth Godin has the uh, marketing machine churning. He's got like an army of thousands, and uh, it's it's nuts. So uh, I'm really looking forward to to July 12th. At least it's not made out of baby formula. Look at it. Yeah. <laughs> what if it was a book about baby formula? That would not be good timing. <laughs> A, a book about where to get baby formula. That, that, <laughs> that, would, would, that would be a good, that's right to market right there. There you go. Where, How to where's Chris Fox? Baby formula. Get Chris Fox on the air. All right. Do we have any more silliness <laughs> before we get to the to business here? Or are we good to move on? <laughs> I don't think so. I think we should put an end to this before it gets really ugly. All right. Well, before we get to our wonderful guests, let's give a great shout out to our friends over there at Kobo Writing Life, the wonderful sponsors of our podcast. Uh, if you are publishing wide, you've got to get your book uploaded to Kobo Writing Life. Uh, you can publish to many countries internationally. You keep all your rights. They have monthly promotions. And the best part is you don't have to be exclusive to Kobo. So there's a link in the show notes, or you can get there by going to KoboWritingLife.com. All right, JD, who is our guest this week? 
All right, this one's going to be fun. We've got Emily St. John Mandel, uh, the author of six novels. She's got Glass Hotel, obviously Station Eleven, which is on HBO right now. Her latest is called Sea of Tranquility. Um, fantastic book. Um, I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Here she is, Emily St. John Mandel. I know this is a bit of a loaded question, but uh, I have to know, uh, who is Olive? Basically me in yeah. the year 2203. <laughs> yeah, Um Olive is, yeah, she's she's essentially um, she's essentially an avatar. All of the interactions she has on tour are things that people actually said to me on the road. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you can see why I wanted to write it down. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know. Like it, it's uh, obviously there's there's part of us in every character we write, but that one seemed to be pretty reflective of your experience. It seemed. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, other characters of mine have been almost that reflective, like Miranda and Station Eleven. The condition of creating art around the margins of a day job was was something that interested me at that time. Um, I think there's a lot of I was going to say a lot of me, but more like a lot of who I was in my 20s and early 30s in Vincent in the Glass Hotel. Yes. But yeah, Olive, Olive is the one who has my job and <laughs> does, you know, does long book tours and, and talks to a lot of interesting people. Yes, yes. Excellent. Well, we're certainly going to talk more about Station Eleven as well. Uh, before we get to that, though, Sea of Tranquility is, is the new book. It's fantastic. I blazed through it in about three days. Uh, oh, I'm, uh, I don't know... Um, I don't know if you do this as an author or a reader, but I intentionally read the Kindle version because I want to see what passages people highlight. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, I've never done that. So you can tell like how many people have highlighted a given passage? You can. It'll show you, well, cool. obviously it won't show you, you know, uh, specifics, but it'll say like, you know, 365 people highlighted this passage. And, uh, and, and there was, I think it might've been a Guardian article um, where you were talking about one specific question that was highlighted thousands of times in the book, which is, what if it always is the end of the world? Right. That was from my Station Eleven lecture, which that was good materials. I gave it to all, <laughs> you know, partly because I, I do like thinking about that. I think it's a really interesting idea. And partly because it was my Station Eleven lecture. And after the experience of COVID-19, I have really zero interest on ever delivering a lecture about pandemics again. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that, that freed up the material. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And, and I think it was related to a, another passage that was highlighted uh, quite a bit, which is, uh, I think as a species, we have a desire to believe that we're living at the climax of the story. It's kind of narcissism. Uh, yeah. as a historian, I I've seen that too, right? It, it seems like every empire in decline can't recognize the free fall while they're in it. Absolutely. Yeah. There's this blindness to it. Um, yeah. And that belief that things are so bad now and like, I'm not saying they're good, <laughs> but I'm just, all I would argue is that we've always said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, uh, uh, another one is, uh, we long secretly for a world with less technology in it. Uh, do you think it's that much of a secret anymore? It might not be, yeah. no. But, you know, that came as a reaction to the Station Eleven tour, which was long. That was mm. 114 events. And wow. so I got into a lot of really interesting conversations about why we're so drawn to post-apocalyptic fiction. And there, there was a whole range of theories that I get into a little bit in Sea of Tranquility. Um, an interesting idea was economic, which I have to say, I didn't take it that seriously at the time, but it feels more real now. And that was this idea that 
maybe in a world that feels fundamentally unfair, you know, playing in a slanted playing field, that maybe we just like long to blow it all up and start over and go out on the road with our with our traveling Shakespearean theater companies. Um, and but the theory that I heard the most often was that it has to do with our anxiety around climate change, uh, climate crisis, I should say, and that's real. At the same time, like you know, to refer to what we were just talking about, we always feel like we're in crisis. So, yeah, what I found myself thinking about was, well, what's actually changed in the world? in the last 15 years or so, if we take it as a given that we always believe we're living in the worst crisis ever and just take that out of the equation, I think the thing that's changed is our technology. And yeah, you know, I'm so ambivalent about it personally. I love our technology. I also don't always like having the internet in my pocket. You know, it's not really healthy to be able to go onto Twitter and read the opinions of hundreds of people about my work at any given moment of the day. <laughs> that's, that's probably not great for anybody's psyche, frankly. Um, yeah, I do have a deep ambivalence. And to your point, it's probably not secret anymore. I think yeah. I'm very much not alone in that. Yeah. Do you do you um, seldomly look at your reviews or, or, or what people are saying about your books? Or do you just try and keep that you know, out of the picture? Um, you know, I'm pretty inconsistent. I really don't read my reviews except for the New York times. I, I do look at what people are saying about me on Twitter though. Like I, I see my mentions. So yeah, that that's kind of an internally inconsistent stance. Yeah. <laughs> it's where I've landed. Uh, the reason I do that is, you know, I've had some bad times on Twitter, like literally everybody else who's ever used the platform. But most of the interactions are just people wanting to connect. And that's really lovely. Yeah. So yeah, I've been on Twitter lately. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I, I couldn't help but think, I mean, all, all of your writing, I think, has this really sort of unique speculative literary feel to it. But but Sea of Tranquility in particular, I was just constantly reminded of, like, my favorite Ray Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut uh, tales. Uh, yeah. are, the, are, are either of those inspirations for you? Have you drawn from any of those uh, those works? Um, I know I've read Bradbury. It's been a long time. Mm. I'm not sure that I've read Vonnegut. I just read a ton of random sci-fi when I was a teenager, yeah. especially, <laughs> you know, like going on into my later life too. But there was a sort of snobbish period when I was a teenager where I would only read sci-fi. Yeah. And I can't, you know, I remember a lot of Asimov, um, but also just like a lot of random YA sci-fi anthologies, you know, books about science stations and desolate wastelands and just, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it always kind of grabbed my attention. I think maybe it's something about, I don't know. It's something about the imaginative limitlessness of sci-fi that I think has always spoken to me where no matter what genre you're working in, whether it's detective fiction or literary fiction or whatever, like you are creating a world, but with sci-fi, you're just creating more of a world. <laughs> yeah, there's kind of like no givens. You're creating time and space around it. And that, that's pretty fun. Yeah, for sure. Uh, in I think it's Slaughterhouse-Five, there's a lot of time travel elements that, that Vonnegut uses. And and obviously in Sea of Tranquility, there's there's elements of time. And I, as an author, I've always found that to be almost like the ultimate challenge. Uh, did you have an yeah. approach or a strategy to writing pieces of the story in different time periods? Um. The approach was to try to make it all in the same style somehow, or actually, as I say that, it doesn't feel quite right because the far future sections with the first person, the character Gaspari, 
those are told in a much looser style. You know, I was aiming for something as close as I could get to uh, Ishiguro's style and never let me go, which has this slightly offhand quality that's devastating in the context of the story. I really admire that. Um, I guess what it really actually was, was something more to do with character development, where I feel like if the characters seem real or you know, if they're as well-developed as possible, then my hope is that my readers will follow me anywhere, you know, from 1912 to the far future in a moon colony. I know that as a reader, I will follow the writer anywhere if I care about the people in the book. So yeah, just trying to make the people as interesting and as well-rounded as possible. Excellent. Yeah. I felt it was, it was uh, a very character driven story, almost in a time travel setting. Time travel is not the focus of of the, of the novel, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's not, and like, it's not incidental, but I really am more interested in how people react to strange situations than I am in, say, how time travel works. Yeah, <laughs> I noticed yeah. that there were a few nods in the in the in the Time Institute about sort of the rules of time travel, but you very very skillfully sort of skirted around probably <laughs> right. the Deflection. hard sci-fi, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting. I feel like if you're writing sci-fi, you have to make a pretty clear choice pretty early on about how far and deep you're going to go into that technology. And some some writers go really deep into their science fictional tech in a way that I think is really interesting and works really well. Like um, Shishin Liu, The Three-Body Problem. You know, in that and then in his short stories too, he gets into, you know, what seems to me as a layperson to be very realistic sounding technical detail about all kinds of wild futuristic technologies. And I feel like that really works in the context of those stories. Uh, for me, I, I have, um, I've always kind of taken the opposite approach where, you know, what I came to was thinking, um, if I'm not going to describe how a car works in fiction set in the present day, then do I need to get into the technology behind the time machine? It's like, at the end of the day, it's just transport. It was kind of my feelings. So yeah, I was just much more interested in focusing on, on character development. Wow. That's a, that's a great uh, pers- perspective there. Um, I, I, there are a few Octavia Butler short stories that I feel kind of work the same way and that it's not mm-hmm. really about the, the sci-fi part. It's really about the, the characters within the setting. And she doesn't even, doesn't need to, to bother with sort of the, you know, the origin story of the particular situation she's created. Right. Yeah, right. excellent, excellent. Well, I know you you have a lot of things uh, going on. Uh, I do. You do <laughs> have a lot of things. I, uh, I mean, I there's no way I could uh, interview you without asking you about Station Eleven. Uh, I mean, the whole experience from from oh, you know, it's been incredible. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, tell us about that. Like, it has to yeah. be amazing. It's amazing. Um, yeah. So you know, I published the book. It was the book that completely changed my life. I, I really never thought I'd be able to quit my day job. And I was okay with that. I was like, you know what? I'll keep publishing these books. Um, I'm a really good administrative assistant. I can, I can just do this. And, and I was, I was okay with that. But at the same time, every writer wishes they had a bigger audience and anybody who says otherwise is lying is kind of my feeling, you know, it's kind of what we're doing here. Um, So I recognized writing station 11 that I, I probably had a more commercially, I want to say viable, um, a more obviously commercial premise than I had with my previous books. So I jumped to a larger publishing house 
And the book was successful in a way that's still incredible to me, which I don't mean in a self-denigrating way at all, just to say that there's some luck involved here. So yeah, that book was successful. And then the HBO series happened, which I had nothing to do with that adaptation beyond writing the source material. And I know that's a big thing, but yeah. <laughs> um, I just mean like I wasn't on set in Canada for five months and I didn't, I didn't write any episodes or anything like that. So I was kind of detached in a way where, you know, on the one hand, I really care. I really care about that project. I really cared about the project. It was important to me that it was good. I knew it was in excellent hands with Patrick Somerville, the showrunner. And I thought, you know, I didn't know him that well when that project started, but I thought, you know what, he's a novelist. Like he'll, he'll respect my work in the way that a novelist would. And he did. So I'm just, I'm, I'm such a fan of the show. <laughs> it's just <laughs> incredible. I'm just, you know, the writing is wonderful. Everything about it, those performances. I, I think all the time about, in particular, Himesh Patel as Jeevan. He just brought such depth to that role. It was so moving to me. Yes. Uh, I, I, I was in, I didn't even know how to respond. Like I, I love the book. And then, you know, sometimes there is a sort of letdown in an adaptation because mm -hmm. obviously it's just a different medium. There's going to be yeah. things lost yeah. and gained. Right. But, uh, it was so beautifully done and, uh, and I live in the great lakes region. And so it really sort of felt visceral to me in a way that was uh, just beautiful. That. That's wonderful. Yeah. Patrick Somerville, um, grew up in the, and spent a lot of time in the Great Lakes region. And you can see the love for that region come through. It's, it's kind of wonderful. Yeah. It, it's, you know, it's interesting just to experience uh, adaptation in that way, where I always knew that it was going to be very different from the book, just because different mediums have different dramatic requirements. I was always fine with that. And what's fascinating to me about the series is the way, in many ways, it's totally different from the book. Like there are huge plot elements that are just not in the text, but it feels fundamentally true to the spirit of the novel in a way that's really interesting. And, you know, almost kind of equally amazing to me, they somehow retained the structure, <laughs> something about moving around in time and the way the past is never fully passed and you move back you know, to different points in time and different moments in memory. That was, yeah, in the way past moments can kind of be a ghost. I just thought it was so beautifully executed. Yes. A huge fan of the show. Yeah, good, good. I want to come back to something you you mentioned earlier. Um, you, you thought you were going to be administrative assistant for the rest of your life and you were mm -hmm. okay with that. Yeah. Uh, was there a, a moment or a window of time you distinctly remember thinking like, I can feel myself transitioning to a, a different lifestyle, a, a different way of living. Yeah, there was a, so I think the background's important here. I'm from a working class background. And what that means is that it is terrifying to quit your day job. There's <laughs> absolutely no safety net. And especially in this country where, you know, your health insurance is somehow attached to your job, which still seems insane to me, but that's a whole other <laughs> Pandora's box. Um, yeah. So Station Eleven came out in the fall of 2014. It was immediately really successful and just in very unexpected kind of unbelievable way. And my feeling was, you know, I need to just hold on to this job because the health insurance was $114 a month for me and my husband, which was, that's like socialism. It's amazing. <laughs> so it was really good healthcare. So I held on to the job and held on to the job. The Station Eleven tour kept getting longer and longer and longer. 
I was good enough at the job that my boss was okay with me working remotely. So I got into this increasingly surreal, it was almost a year, it was probably nine months or so where, you know, there was, it was just really strange. Like there were, there was a day I remember where I had to leave my admin job early because I had a photo shoot at Time Magazine, for example, or this long period where one of my jobs was booking flights for my boss, but I didn't book my own plane travel. There were three <laughs> publicists doing that, one for each country through which I was passing. <laughs> so it just got weirder and weirder. It became more and more untenable. And I remember a breaking point where I was on my second or third tour of the UK and the schedule was crazy. I had like late night BBC interviews and stuff. And I had all this admin work back in New York that I had to deal with. So, you know, I'm reconciling the Amex account for the lab, like, you know, in between, in between interviews. And I realized it was this travel I had to book, which I hadn't had a chance to do earlier in the day. So yeah, I, re I do remember a specific moment um, in the Academy Hotel in London booking flights for my boss at midnight on a Sunday and just feeling like I can't do this anymore. And then um, a few months later, I found out I was pregnant and that was just one thing too many. I, I remember feeling like I could raise a baby and do a day job, or I could do a day job and write books, or I could write books and raise a baby, but I can't do all three. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah. So that was the moment that I quit. Um, I have to say, you know, if anybody listening is ever grappling with this, the best advice I came across came from a comedian. And he said the advice that he'd heard from an older comedian was keep your day job until you can't afford to anymore. And I think that's a really smart way of framing the question. You know, that's much more responsible than leave your day job at the first moment that you possibly might be able to almost make it, which, you know, sometimes works out. But yeah. <laughs> is maybe less likely to work out than, you know, keep it until you can't. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was, that was how I framed the decision for myself. Has that decision changed your relationship to your art? Um, not really, oddly enough. Um, there's never enough time is the thing. Like I used to create art around the margins of a day job, but you know, I had a baby just a few months after leaving that job. So, and I was on the, on tour and the whole like interim. Um, so yeah, you know, there was the day job, but now there's a child. <laughs> so like, you know, your attention is always divided. I think is what it comes down to. I, I always took my work seriously, or I guess took myself seriously as an artist, even when I did have a day job, because it's just so clear to me that um, being an artist and making money at your art are two separate things. So yeah, I wouldn't say that it really changed my relationship to my art that much. Mm. Did you put any type of, uh, I mean, looking back on it now, do you think you put any type of pressure on yourself for the Glass Hotel after the success of Station Eleven? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, was, <laughs> that was such a thing. Um, this is the least sympathetic problem in the entire world, which is why I don't talk about it much. <laughs> but, um, you know, with the previous books, including Station Eleven, there wasn't, there weren't really huge crowds of people waiting to hear what I was going to write next. You know, partly they came out in pretty quick succession. My first four books, it was 2009, 2010, 2012, 2014. So like it was a pretty consistent schedule. But then because Station Eleven 
did find such a huge audience. Um, a lot of that audience was on Twitter. So, you know, I'd, I'd log on to Twitter and people would be adding me and they'd be like, um, time for Emily Mandel to write her next book. I'm just be like, oh God, <laughs> like, log off Twitter, stare at Microsoft Word. Like, what am I doing? Um, the pressure was only internal. My, my publishers were lovely and never even inquired about the next manuscript, which I very much appreciated. So uh, yeah, you know, it was a thing though. There was this very intense self-imposed pressure, just this feeling like, whatever follows station 11 had better be good. (laughs) (laughs) I know uh, many of our listeners, myself included, we're we're always curious about the writing process. Uh, How do you first draft, revise? How do you get to to a finished manuscript? Um, I start writing longhand on scrap paper, usually, or in a notebook. I don't... I don't do that for a long period of time, or I don't stick with it for a long period of time. I go back and forth, partly because my office is a mess and like I'll lose all the scrap paper. But yeah, I like to write, you know, five or 10 or 20 pages longhand. And then I'm editing it as I transcribe it into Word. And I just switch back and forth like that. There's something about writing by hand that I think slows my brain down in a way that's really useful for for just getting on the page and getting work done. yeah, so I keep doing that for a year usually, or in fairies. Like Glass Hotel was longer because that book was really hard, and Sea of Tranquility was shorter because that book is really short. But yeah, I just switch back and forth. After some period of time, I have an incredibly messy first draft. One of the reasons that first draft is messy is because there is no outline, and I never know what direction the book's going to go in, which you know, there are real pros and cons to that approach. If you do have an outline for your book, and I want to be clear that there's no right or wrong way to do it. I absolutely have friends who, you know, have a clear outline before they sit down to write. If you have that outline, that's your roadmap. And you've spent much less time going down weird cul-de-sacs. But sometimes if you don't have that, the weird cul-de-sacs can kind of like open up unexpectedly into new weird vistas and the book can go in a direction you might not expect, which can be really exciting. So, you know, as an example, I thought The Glass Hotel was going to be a crime novel, just very narrowly focused around a Ponzi scheme. But by the end, it was this weird book that's, and I I like weird books, but it was this book with um, a Ponzi scheme, container shipping, and it's also a ghost story. So, you know, it eludes any attempt at an elevator pitch, but it might be a more interesting book than I would have written with an outline. <laughs> so anyways, you know, I have these messy first drafts. And then for me, the novel comes together in the revision. Once I have a full first draft, I'm not really thinking of that as the novel. It feels more like the raw material. Like if I were a sculptor, the first draft would be the block of stone and I'm going to find the novel somewhere in there. So once, once I have that first draft, to me, that's the most fun part of the process when I've got the material that I can start revising because I really love that part, just revising and revising and revising in a fairly obsessive way, but I love it um, for a long period of time until I have, until I think that I have the book. Wow. Are there certain times or places that you reserve for your writing or do you pretty much do it anywhere? Uh, I pretty much do it anywhere. That's a skill that I very consciously developed during all the years when I had a day job. You know, my, my experience back then was if you can just go to Starbucks and write for 45 minutes during your lunch break, 
then you'll get a lot more work done, you know, at the end of the week than, than you would have if you have to be in a specific place at a specific time. I have to say that skill has also been really helpful just in terms of writing as a parent where, you know, I can, I can write under pretty much any circumstances as long as I've got noise blocking headphones. That's really the key. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, a, that's a really key tool for me in my writing life. Um, you know, ideally, I like to be here in this room. It's my home office in Brooklyn, but I travel a lot and I really do try to write anywhere. You started dancing. That was sort of your primary art, right? Um, yes. And then you transitioned to writing. What was that transition like? Um, you know, it was a really strange time in my life. So yeah, I studied really intensely as a dancer. I graduated from a great conservatory program in Canada and then realized pretty quickly that I'd fallen out of love with dance. It was like this thing that had caught hold of me all my life just suddenly let go. And I remember this, not a specific moment, but a gradually dawning realization of, oh my God, I don't even like dance anymore. <laughs> what am I going to do? And you know, that was a non-degree granting uh, program for contemporary dance. I didn't bother to finish my high school diploma before I went there. So I had no degrees of any kind and a mountain of student loan debt from the conservatory. So it was this weird kind of, wow, now what <laughs> feeling? And I had written all my life though, as a hobby. I was homeschooled when I was a kid and there was a period of time when one of the requirements was that I had to write something every day. So I was in the habit of writing from a really early age and it was something I really loved, but never showed to anybody. So yeah, it was this gradual transition when I was about 22 from, you know, th this moment of thinking, well, maybe what comes next is the writing because I love that. Maybe I could write a novel. Maybe I could take the writing more seriously. So yeah, this slow transition of going from thinking of myself as a dancer who sometimes wrote to thinking of myself as a writer who sometimes went to dance auditions to just letting go of the dance and, and writing. Yeah. Thinking of myself as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you had to change your identity, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, it was kind of a relief. Like the um, dance had started to really feel like a burden for some time. Hmm. Yeah. Well, why don't we bring it full circle? We'll close out the conversation sure. with uh, um, this one. My favorite question to ask all of our guests is uh, you've been in the industry now for, for a number of years. You've seen a lot of things. Uh, what are you excited about? What's on the horizon for writing or publishing that, that you're excited about? You know what? And what I'm really excited about generally is it feels like the barriers between genres are falling in a way that I really love. And that's really changed over the years since I've been publishing. So you know, my first novel was rejected by 35 publishers and some of them just didn't like it, which is fine. But what I saw over and over in rejection letters was we don't know how we would market a book that's both literary fiction and a detective novel. And I just feel like that's not a thing anymore where, you know, Station Eleven was sci-fi and literary fiction, as is Sea of Tranquility. The Glass Hotel is a crime story, a ghost story, and a mystery, I guess. So, yeah, it, it just feels like a really exciting time, not just for being a writer, but for being a reader. And that, that's something I love about the current landscape. All right. Uh Emily was amazing. It was so cool talking to her. Uh, a lot of great insights. 
Zach, I know this is this is like your favorite book, so I figured we got to yeah. start with you, right? Yeah, yeah. This was obviously really cool to listen to, just because as I've, as you just said, and as I mentioned on the podcast several times, like Station Eleven is my favorite book. So it was it was really cool to uh, to hear her talk, and I tell you, it was it was really cool to hear her talk about like how that book changed her life. Like I thought that that whole conversation around that was really cool. Um, how you know she didn't really expect. Obviously, I think you don't really expect that's going to happen. You know, we you put a you put a book out and you hope it does well, but you never think that it's going to, you know, be be what it was. Which was, I mean, that book is, I mean, go go on Google and type in best post apocalyptic novels, and that book is always at the top of the list, right up there with The Road, and I Am Legend, and a couple other books. You know. Um, so it, I thought that whole conversation was really cool. Just her talking about, um, you know, and I think for people who are, uh, in a position where they don't write full time, I think a lot of the things she said were, were awesome. Just about how, you know, around, uh, staying at her job and how she, um, you know, she sounded like she felt, even though she obviously wanted to write full time, she was pretty content and happy with where she was at and she was okay with just writing on the side and, obviously eventually had to make that big choice uh especially after she um you know was gonna was going to become a mom and uh so yeah i don't know a lot of that that whole conversation was fascinating she had the whole problem with healthcare, just like the rest of us in the united states who want to go full-time so yeah i i know we've talked about this before and uh and, and the more episodes we do the more this hits home for me i i know that the one of the I won't call it a criticism, but I know some of the things I've heard about the show is that that maybe the average writer, the new writer can't relate because we're interviewing some of the some of the best people in the world. But there's these constant reminders that they all had to start from nothing. Yeah, they everyone all had to start from, zero. from a day job or yeah. they had to take a big risk like nobody just sort of appeared on the publishing scene and, and was anointed the golden child except for JD. But like other than that, uh, you know, all these people are starting from the beginning. And I, I find that more encouraging, you know, like it, it's saying like, yeah, there's opportunity here and you can do it. It's going to be a lot of hard work. It might take years and it's not going to happen for everybody, but but it can happen. There's potential. Yeah, I mean, it, it rarely happens to anybody over, overnight, um, you know, like and everybody just assumes it just because we kind of learn a lot of these names overnight. I was listening to um, uh, it's Grady Hendrix's book on paperbacks from hell. I don't know if you guys have, have read that mm, yeah, or, or listened to it, but he, I got the audio book and it's really good. And he basically runs through all these paperbacks going all the way from the, like the 50s to the present. Um, and when he starts talking about Stephen King, like he brought up something that I, I didn't even know. Um, the Dead Zone was actually King's first book to debut on the New York Times list. Um, and I think that's his fourth or fifth novel, um, you know, huh. so that that's saying a little something, you know, like he, even, you know, like obviously today, a household name for sure. But back then, you know, like he, he was in that that same kind of boat. Um, and this is totally uh, off topic. But in the, in the same thing, uh, he mentioned um, Salem's Lot when they put the cover out. And, the, you know, obviously this is dating, but covers have always been important even back then. Um, they didn't put the title of the book on there. It was just an image. So they were trying to do something different, um, you know, which I just thought, thought was kind of, you know, neat. 
you know, like it, even back then they're trying to come up with ways to grab readers with, with that particular cover. Um, but she had brought up, you know, keep your day job until you can't afford it anymore. Um, that is probably, you know, I, I forget who she said that was actually a quote from, but that is probably a, a golden rule right there. Cause it, it is so difficult to, to actually walk away. Um, and, you know, and I had some of those, those same weird type things. I mean, I was working as a chief compliance officer for a brokerage firm when the stuff with fourth monkey was happening. And, and I remember one day I stepped out into the hallway to take a phone call from Ron Howard. Um, yeah. And like my coworkers were running, you know, like walking by me, going to the bathroom, like my boss walked by at one point to go out somewhere, you know, and I'm on the phone with Ron Howard and I can't tell anybody what I'm actually doing and, and they have no clue, you know, and it's, it's just, it's weird. And you know, like you hang up that phone and then you go back in and start doing your, your daily thing again. Um, but yeah, at some point, you know, it, it becomes the day job actually becomes a burden. You sit down and you do the math and, you know, you realize that it's hurting you to actually keep the day job instead of helping you. Um, and that's a very important thing to, to really look at because I know a lot of people that pull that, that trigger a little too early. You know, they, they think they're all set and they, they quit the day job. And then, you know, before they know it, they're trying to rely on KDP to, to pay the bills. Um, and Amazon, you know, and it's just, it's not, not there, you know, like the healthcare comes out of nowhere. You've got to pay social security. You've got to pay this. You've got to pay that. You know, there's, there's a lot of things going on there that you really need to consider and make sure you're, you're good. Yeah. I, I also, uh, kind of want to change the topic a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about the writing, uh, time travel or, or, or different times. Uh, Sia Tranquility was so good and, and, and she was so masterful in working in, the time jumps, and I know that we've had this conversation with like Blake Crouch, and uh, and I'm just fascinated by authors who are able to keep all of that. Like you think about a movie or a television show, you kind of have a team of writers who are sort of double checking each other, right? Like keeping everything in line. But like for a novel, it's the author pretty much has to hold that in their head. So, um, you know, what, what's your approach? I know I don't know. Zach, if you've written any like strictly time travel, but I know JD, no, you know, I, I stay away from yeah. it for exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, JD, you've written some things that have time travel elements in them, right? I, I've done a lot of you know like then and now type stuff, um, you know where we've got flashbacks going on. Um, you know, I did it with Dracul um, mainly because I knew the story was going to start off fairly slow because it was a lot of autobiographical stuff. You know, Bram Stoker is, is the star of the book along with his sister and their kids when it first starts off. So there's not a whole lot of action at the beginning. I knew I had to break that up with something, so I, I threw in you know current day or now sections um, that were extremely fast paced to, to basically create that roller coaster that I'm always shooting for. You know, some little fast pace section then take it to a nice slow spot then come back and, and back and forth um it, for me i've never had trouble really keeping that kind of thing straight in, in my head um and getting it down on paper i do have a lot of trouble when i'm watching tv shows like like that um and it, they have to be very careful as far as how they do it i mean the, the better ones tend to use a different camera or a different yeah, lens filter or, or something. you know filter some something to just break it up just a tiny bit um, but i've seen plenty where they don't do that and and it gets extremely confusing and a really good story kind Kind of falls off the you know, off the cliff just because it's too difficult to follow um, you know and it can be as simple as giving the star of the show a different haircut you know it doesn't have to be something totally complex but you, you got to do something and I think it's a good idea to try to keep that in mind even when you're, you're writing the book you know you need some way to designate that you know I, I tend to just put it right at the chapter headings you know then and now or I use timestamps um, and timestamps even with that you have to be careful you have to make sure that you know it's as readily apparent to the reader that you're you know those dates don't line up because you know if you throw a date on a page and it's 10 pages before you get to the next one they're not going to remember what that last date was you know so simplify it so that's why i tend to do like then and now yeah yeah and it gets when you're when when you're talking about like sci-fi time travel especially like and not just 
like then and now type stuff, like it can get crazy just because you have characters going like to the future and change and stuff. Then you have to like, you know, have those changes be, you know, I think about like, you know, you mentioned Blake Crouch has done that, you know, he has books where there's actual time travel. That's like affecting things in the pre in, in other times and, or like eleven twenty two sixty three was like that uh, Stephen King book, which is one of my favorite books. Yeah, I love that book too. Um, yeah, that that's a great book, and it's and I, I keep in track of all that. Is just I don't know. That seems like I, I love reading those books and watching those movies. But I mean, I mean, Back to the Future is my favorite movie ever. But like, it's just uh, it's kind of a headache to keep track. She of. She seems so. to have a, a a real handle on it though. Like I, I loved she I did, loved the fact yeah. that she was like I'm not like she wasn't really concerned about the like quantum physics of time travel right she was like yeah this is the story like you just accept this and and don't get mired in sort of like the hard sci-fi details of it and i love that approach you know she brought up something else that you know people don't really talk about a whole lot in sci-fi but there's basically two camps there's the ones that have to explain every piece of technology down to the de- you know littlest detail so that it makes sense you know to the, the reader um, but it can get very convoluted um, and then there's the other ones that just accept you know you just write it as if it's fact you know this this is an iPhone everybody knows what it is let's move on and you, you don't really acknowledge it beyond that um, Andy Weir I've seen actually go in both directions when you read the Martian you know like a lot of it reads like a scientific paper you know like he's literally just is quoting from you know term you know team um, you know some, like a study or something, um, but then his, his um, one of his other books um, I forget which one it was um, it was it was based on the moon Artemis uh, Artemis was that the one where they like they carried around a gizmo like a, that's, so, yeah. The, yeah like he just, just called this device a gizmo and it did all these different things and like he didn't really describe you know, any of the technology behind it but as a reader you just accept it and I honestly I kind of like that approach better because you know when I, there's a lot of scientific explanation I tend to start skimming pages but even with the Martian. He man like not to go off on a diatribe here, but like he managed to make it uh, approachable with the humor. Right, like, I think that was the big difference is he was able to make hard sci-fi humorous, which uh, which was you know definitely a difference there. Uh, the uh, the I tell you something else that was really interesting to hear her talk about. Um, I thought it was really interesting to hear her talk about the Station Eleven show yeah. and just her approach to it and how. She was just like, I had nothing to do with it. I was totally hands off. And it almost sounded like she was able to just kind of enjoy it as a fan. Like she had the right mindset going in. She understood like they're not like they're not going to exactly adapt my novel exactly the way it is. And I'm okay with that. And I'm going to appreciate it for what it is. And I love that because I, I feel like that's something that. And I understand why, but I feel like that's something like a lot of authors get too caught up on that and don't just treat it like a different medium, which she was able to do. And I think because of that, she was able to really just enjoy the whole experience. Yeah. Uh, um, she also brought up some of the classics. I think everybody should read Ray Bradbury or, or Kurt Vonnegut, um, Isaac Asimov. Like even if you're not into sci-fi, you know, like you really need to check those guys out. You know, Ray Bradbury in particular, I mean, he's across the board with horror and sci-fi. And his short stories are, are absolutely phenomenal. And you can get the, the collections for like 99 cents for like 100 short stories for Ray Bradbury. Um, it, and it, they're some of the best I've ever read. And the funny thing is when you read them, like you can see the inspiration to some of the more modern stuff in, in those. Like you can see some of the bigger name authors that are out there today where they got the inspiration for their stories. It came from, you know, those Ray Bradbury ones. And you, you see that there. And it's, it's you know, it's a cool way to kind of you know just feel out new ideas and, and also just get an idea you know some of the, some of the best writing in the world yeah i would say and i think i may have mentioned this in the interview like i i really feel like um 
Emily's writing reminds me a lot of Bradbury. Like it's it's articulate and it's insightful and it's um, poetic in a in a way, you know. Uh, and and Bradbury was like that, you know. He he could write across genre. He he wrote in a way that was very engaging, um, very emotional, and uh, and I feel that in a lot of Emily's works too. Absolutely. What was the, uh, before we get out, I do want to bring attention to that one quote that you asked her about. I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, what if we're always living at the end of the world or something like that? What was yeah, it? Do you remember? Uh, it was something like that. There were a few quotes I pulled from, from the book as I was reading it. That, I was just, as, as a huge fan of that, of post-apoc and that genre, like when I was just like, that is, <laughs> that's like, it really got me thinking, like, what if we are doing, I don't know, it was, it was awesome. So I wanted to bring attention to that too, because it was great. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I mentioned this to her as well. I can't remember if it was on, on the air or off the air, but uh, one of the great things for me in reading Kindle uh, is seeing the highlights, yeah. is seeing what other yeah, people highlighted. That. And, uh, and that, one got, that one had thousands of highlights on it. Yeah. It's yeah, a great, I, great line. So I love going through those just to, to see it. And like, and I can never figure out like, are people highlighting just because they saw other yeah. people highlighting or, you know, because, you know, some paragraphs sometimes get a couple hundred or a thousand. All, you know. I do that sometimes. Sometimes yeah. I'll find myself highlighting stuff just because someone else did it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I've only done that on a few books and like, it was only because I stumbled into the feature where you can go back and you can actually see what you highlighted. Like, you know, it's like a summary, summary document. Um, just kind of a fun way just to, to run through a, a book again. Um, but yeah, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Great interview. She was, uh, she was articulate and interesting and, uh, was just thrilled to, to have her on the podcast. So that was, uh, that was a real treat for me as well. All right. Uh, next week on the doc, who do we have JD? This one's going to be fun. We've got David Kopp. Um, he's a, a, the ninth most successful screenwriter of all time um, based on U.S. box office. He's, he has a total gross of around $2.3 billion for, for screenplays that he's written. Um, and he, he's obviously worked on some of the biggies, um, Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, Mission Impossible, um, wrote Angels and Demons for um, Dan Brown, uh, Stir of Echoes, which is one of my all-time favorites, uh, Secret Window, um, and on and on and on. Um, you know, that's on the screenwriting side, but he's also also one hell of an author and he's got a new title coming out called aurora uh, which releases june 7th so he's going to be on next week excellent looking forward to it already if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now we'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing thanks for listening to this episode of writers inc access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com